Open your Bibles to Psalm 53. Psalm 53, we are continuing to take a psalm a week and work our way through. Uh, So you don't have to ask your dad in the morning, what are you preaching on today? You can just know that next week it'll be Psalm 54, unless I change my mind and we get out of the psalms, but then there's no hope to know what I'm going to be doing. Anyway, so Psalm 53 this morning. What is mankind's basic nature? Don't answer out loud because you don't know exactly what I'm looking for, but you should have some thoughts in your head. Mankind's basic nature. Now, in Sunday school, we've been doing a lot of work looking at the basic nature of mankind as mankind is made in the image of God. Mankind is God's representative in nature. We represent the Almighty God in the way that He has made us, we are a replica statue, a living statue of who God is. But that's not where we're going to focus so much this morning. We're going to focus on another aspect of mankind's nature, and it's the nature of man post-Genesis 3. And hopefully you know what happens in Genesis 3, so you already have an indication of what I'm talking about. Genesis 3, what do we have happening? The fall. And what is mankind's nature after the fall? Still bearing the image of God, but an image of God that is marred, marred by sin, And therefore, mankind's basic nature is sinner. Our basic nature is sinner. We are fallen sons and daughters of Adam. And if mankind's basic nature, still the image of God, but now sinful, marred, broken, what's mankind's basic need? Salvation. Redemption through the second Adam. What the first Adam could not do, we need another Adam to come and do. We need another Adam that will keep the law of God perfectly and represent his people to God. And so mankind is a sinner in need of salvation. And when you look around you, you should be aware that every single human being born into this world is that kind of person, a sinner in need of a savior. And understanding who mankind is should direct how we live, and how we interact with mankind. So Psalm 53 is where we are. Before we read it, let's pray together. Lord, we have sung together. We've cried out to you our need of your spirit to open our eyes, our hearts, to soften us, to receive the truth. Plant it down deep in us and bring forth fruit for your glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Psalm 53, please look at your Bible and follow along as I read. To the choir master, according to Mahalath, a masculine of David. I didn't read that name out loud before I got there. You always got to read it out loud. Mahalath. There we go. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt, doing abominable iniquity. There is none who does good. God looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all fallen away. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Have those who work evil no knowledge, who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon God? There they are in great terror, where there is no terror. For God scatters the bones of him who encamps against you. You put them to shame, for God has rejected them. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. 
When God restores the fortunes of his people, let Jacob rejoice. Let Israel be glad. This is God's holy and inspired word given to us. May we hear it this morning. Psalm 53 is focused on one basic truth with many related things. There is none who does good. That is proper English, by the way. There is none who does good. We would say there's no one who does good, and that's repeated also. But there's none who does good. As we look at this psalm, we know that this is a song written specifically for corporate worship. This is a corporate worship song because it is given to the choir master. He's going to lead the people in this song. Therefore, it is a song for Christians. It's also a masculine, which is most likely a teaching song. So this is an instruction psalm for Christians. Now, the setting of the psalm is not specific when it was written, when David wrote it, yet it is one of the most unique psalms as it is a rewriting of a previous psalm. This is the rewriting of Psalm 14. How many of you were aware of that? You just read it. How many of you were aware of it before this morning or before you read it this week in your your notes? I, I wasn't either. And, uh, we sh- we, and for how many of us have read through the Psalms how many times? We should have we got that. We should have figured it out. But sometimes you come across a Psalm and you think, well, I, I'm familiar with this Psalm because I read 53 before. But no, you get to read it. if you read all 150, you get to read it twice. It's the only Psalm that repeats like this. So it's fascinating. Now, it's not a word-for-word repetition. So um, what do they call that when you take an old song and, and you redo it, but mostly it's exactly the same song with some changes? A remix? Not a cover. A cover would be taking the old song and just someone else sings it. But this is a remix. We're changing up a little bit. So this is kind of like the remix of Psalm 14. All right? So it's the idea that it's not word for word repeated, but it is thought for thought. And the biggest change uh, comes in verse 5. Other than that, it, it is very, very close. And so what Charles Spurgeon says about this is that all repetitions are not vain repetitions. Understand this, when God repeats himself, it's because he's got a very good reason for it, and we better pay attention. So kids, when your parents repeat themselves, it's for very good reason. You better pay attention to it. So all all repetitions are not vain repetitions. Spurgeon goes on to say, we are slow to learn and need line upon line. David, after a long life, found men no better than they were in his youth. Holy writ never repeats itself needlessly. There is good cause of the second copy of the psalm. Let us read it with more profound attention than before. If our age has advanced, we shall find the doctrine of the psalm more evident than in our youth. The idea, I think, is that Spurgeon is saying that David wrote Psalm 14 when he was younger and Psalm 53 when he was older, and he found it more true the older he got. Have you found that to be true? Do you find people more wicked now that you're older than when you were younger? And I don't mean the younger generations. I know you feel that way. I mean the people of your generation. Do you see mankind as more evil than you thought before? It's easier when we're young to think that most people are pretty good and and most people are doing their best. And, of course, that's a philosophy driven into us uh, in many different places. But the older we get, the more we start to realize just how sinful we are and how sinful other people around us are. And uh, this should be more true. So we need to be regularly reminded, especially in worship, of the true nature of mankind. If we don't see man truly for who he is and what his true condition is, then we will not bring a true solution. 
Listen to that carefully. If you don't understand the need, you won't bring the right remedy. If the doctor misdiagnoses the problem, then the medicine won't work. In fact, many times when you misdiagnose a patient, then the medicine you give will make the patient worse. And we live in a culture that misdiagnoses mankind's problem, and therefore their medicine is only exacerbating the problem. The culture is not getting better. It is getting worse at a more rapid pace because we've missed the idea that mankind is a sinner in need of a savior. Notice also, if we don't rightly understand who God is, we will never rightly understand man. Your understanding of salvation flows from your understanding of man's problem as a sinner, and your understanding of man's problem as a sinner flows out of your understanding of who God is. God is holy. God is righteous. He is our creator. He gave us his law to live by, and we have broken it. So God is holy and righteous. As our creator, he demands us to obey his law, to keep his law perfectly, and we are sinners. We've broken his law, and therefore we need to be saved from the wrath of God. But if we don't get God right, then we don't get man right, and we don't get our need right, and we don't get our solution right. If we're just mostly bags of, or bags of mostly water, fizzing chemicals uh, by evolutionary standards, then all we need is to improve. And how do people improve? They improve by education. So what's our greatest need? More education. More education paid for by the state. More forgiveness of loans by the state so that we can get more education because our problem and all of the wickedness, if we even have a category for wickedness, is because man is uneducated. We're going to educate ourselves into good behavior. See the problem? Especially if you have the wrong education, you will educate them in the wrong solutions with the wrong problem, to meet the wrong problem, and it just gets worse. So without God... This is where we end up, and this is where this psalm begins, without God. So first of all, we need to see in verses 1 through 3, mankind's nature. Man, mankind's nature. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. So this psalm begins with people who say, there is no God. This is God's definition of a fool. This is God's definition of a fool. The atheist... The person who denies the existence of God is a fool. Now, this person might even give lip service to believing in the existence of God, but the heart does not lie, and God knows the heart. So this is a heart condition that when it gets bad enough, people will be bold enough to say it. Isn't it amazing we live in a time when people are very bold and happy to say, there is no God. They say that with no problem. It's because they so believe in their heart. Because for millennium, people have believed in their heart there is no God, but we're afraid to say it. But now, once they become so emboldened in their heart, they're willing to speak it. So this is a heart problem, but it does come out through the lips. An atheist proclaims there is no God. Now, this is God's definition of a fool. This is God's revelation. Yet there are even some Christians who want to argue with this statement. They want to talk about how many intelligent atheists there are in the world. They want to talk about the super smart people who say there is no God. Do some super smart people who deny God's existence come to mind? Yeah. Many super smart, highly intelligent people deny God's existence. So how can this be true that these people are fools if they are so super intelligent? If they can explain so many things that you don't even begin to understand? Well, I've, I've got a simple answer to this and then a more nuanced answer. 
How can these, these people be fools? Because God says so. God says so. He, he says this is what a fool is. And to deny this statement is to deny the scripture, which is to deny, to deny God's own self-revelation. Let me give a fuller answer. The way that super intelligent people can be fools is because super intelligent people have made a choice. And the word choice that God chooses is also vital. God is not saying that these atheists are stupid or ignorant or dumb. It is not a matter of intelligent intelligence or intelligent ability. It is a matter of rebellion. The fool says in his heart, there is no God, because the fool in his heart has rejected God, because the Bible says clearly in Romans 1 that every person ever born knows that there is a God. They know there's a God. They've rejected that God and rebelled against him to the point of now even claiming, well, there is no such thing as even God. So it's not a matter of intelligence, it's a matter of rebellion. And anyone who rebels against the knowledge of God to the point of even deny, denying his existence is absolutely a fool. Matthew Henry says this, the fool cannot satisfy himself that there is no God, but he wishes there was none, and he pleases himself with the fancy that it is possible there may be none. He cannot be sure there is none, and therefore he is willing to think there is none. Mankind doesn't want there to be a God. And despite all of the evidence and all of the knowledge in, in the universe and all the knowledge in their heart, they know there's a God, but they don't want there to be a God, so they do everything they can to believe or to hope or to wish away the God that is. Because if there is no God, there is no accountability. And mankind does not want to answer to anyone for anything, especially to an almighty God. And therefore, they say, well, I don't want there to be a God, so I hope there's not a God, and I hope there's not a God so much that now I believe there is no God, and I'm trying to explain away the God that is. And that is the action, the attitude, the thinking of a fool. What do we learn from that? I would say this, a couple things, many things, but a couple I have, never trust a fool. No matter how intelligent, no matter how smart, no matter how much they know, never trust someone who denies God's existence. Listen to me carefully. Never trust someone who denies God's existence. No matter how intelligent, how smart, how much they know in all other areas. And this goes for political conservatives who are atheists as well. Be very careful of people who agree with you on so many issues but still deny the existence of God. Because they have misdiagnosed the problem, they will therefore misdiagnose the solution, and there will come points where they will get it absolutely 100% dead wrong, opposite wrong. Do not trust them. That doesn't mean you never listen to anything they say, or you can't even learn things from them, but don't trust them. <laughs> so how does that work? Well, if you have more questions, you can talk to me later. Charles Spurgeon says, the atheist is morally as well as mentally a fool. A fool in his heart as well as in his head. A fool in morals as well as in philosophy. So they'll get many things wrong. They won't get everything wrong, but they'll get many things wrong, so that's why you can't trust them. But now the application to us, uh, uh, personal application in the sense of looking at ourselves, practical atheism is our greatest temptation. Practical atheism is our greatest temptation. We have saying, oh great God, come and occupy my heart, change and transform. We've sung these things. We believe in God. We believe not only in the existence of God, we know that God. He has saved us. We trusted in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We are wholeheartedly those who believe and trust in God. But how do we live? 
Practical atheism, what would that look like? Well, it would mean this, to live our daily lives as if God doesn't exist, as if he isn't at work, as if he isn't present, as if he doesn't see and doesn't know, as if he is unable to act, as if he is not in control, as if he isn't king. Should I go on? We live facing the trials, the temptations, the issues, the struggles, the tempta- all these things of life as if, in many ways, there is no God. Therefore, if there is no God, there is no prayer. So your first response is a human response to deal with the issues of life yourself, to solve your own problems, to do your own thing, to come up with your own solutions. And then when you sin, you say, well, God doesn't see. He doesn't know. There's no accountability. What is that? That's practical atheism. And then when you say, well, I don't like what's happening. Well, God's not in control. This isn't God's plan. This isn't he working out what he wants. Well, I don't like God's plan. Oh, you know better than God? Practical atheism all over the place. So we struggle with this. We are not like these fools, this fool. We are not them. But we struggle with aspects of this even as we struggle with our faith. Now, notice what is also true of such a person, the rest of verse 1. I believe the psalmist is still referencing the fool. And so the fool is also corrupt, doing abominable iniquity. The word abominable is important. Atheists commit the most terrible of sins because atheists believe they will never have to answer for their actions. The worst crimes ever committed, the worst sins ever committed, the most worst atrocities will happen in places where atheism has root, especially in the rulers of that society. Abominable iniquity. They don't believe. They've so denied God that they do actually not believe that he exists, and therefore their actions will have no eternal consequences and no accountability. And just think what you would do if you didn't have any accountability in the end. You say, me? Who, me? Yeah, I, I, know, I know who you people are. I've been around long enough. I know how I am. We know who we are. If there was no accountability, if we didn't have to face God, what would we do? It's terrible. And God also makes it clear to the atheist that no atheist does good. There is none who does good. None of the atheists do good. How can that be true? Don't you know any atheists who do morally good things, give to charity, do kind things for others? We must, again, be reminded that doing good is not defined by man, but by God. God, as a lawgiver, is the one who defines good and evil. We don't determine the basis of morality, and we don't get to determine the judgment of each person. God says that no atheist does good. Is he right? <laughs> I mean, is he, does, does he get it right, or has he made a few mistakes in here that we're going to have to correct? Well, he, he doesn't really mean they don't do any good. No, he says... None who does good. It's it's across the board. And one way you can think about this that it might help you is from the New Testament, from Romans 14, verse 23. It says, for whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Any externally, morally good thing someone does if it does not proceed from faith in God and a trust in the one true and almighty God from the heart, then even their good external moral activity is not good totally, is not good in its foundation, because it comes from a heart of disbelief, a heart of rebellion, and therefore it's marred. So it doesn't mean that they don't do anything externally good. It's that the definition of good is not just external actions. 
What is sin? Sin is missing the mark. And you can miss the mark in action, what you do, in attitude, why you do it, and in aim, for what purpose do you do it? So this sinner, the rebel sinner against God, is he doing what he does for the glory of God? When he gives to charity, is he giving to charity to glorify God or to glorify himself? Well, if you do something to glorify yourself, is that action good? Well, it's a good action, but with a wrong aim for my own glory. Well, that's idolatry. That's wickedness. That's, that's not good. Well, what if they have a good action with a good aim, but with a bad attitude? I'm going to glorify God by obeying my parents, but I hate every minute of it. Is that good? No. Still not good. Notice Whatever is not from faith is sin. Now notice what good is. Good is hitting, hitting the mark of God's standard from a heart of worship that glorifies God. So the standard is hit. The arrow hits the target, and it comes from an attitude of, of loving God and loving others and worshiping God, and it's for God's glory. That's good. That's what Christians do because they glorify God, they love God, and they're serving God in their obedience. That is good. But an atheist doesn't do anything good because of those other things. So the, it's not just one fraction of that external morality. That's not how God defines good. That's how we define good most of the time. And therefore, we have to adjust our standard to fit God's standard, not the other way around. Now, letter B comes from verse 2. Well, we see about God's definition of a fool. Now God's search for a God-seeker. God's search for a God-seeker. God is looking down from heaven on all of mankind. What's he looking for? Someone who seeks after God. Another way of saying it is any who understands. Is there anyone who understands, who seeks after God? Is, in all of humanity, is there anyone who not only understands that there is a God, but seeks after that God? Because there are people who will not deny the existence of God. They will say, of course there's a God. They will believe in a God or some God or many gods, but will they seek after that God? Will they go after the one true God? Well, no, you can still rebel after the God you believe exists. That's what many kids, many teenagers, many young adults raised in church do. They still believe that there's a God. They have enough of a fundamental understanding that there is a God. They might even believe there's a man, Jesus Christ, who died on the cross, a perfect man. They might know all those facts and still do what? Totally rebel against it. 100% reject it. Were any of you there? Any of you walk away? Even with a faith that there is a God? So it's not enough. It's not enough to say there is a God because the group who publicly proclaim to be atheists is really rather small, less than 5% even in, 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 in our country. Now, that number is rapidly growing, and 5% is, is unbelievably high and insane, but we see that. So is it either atheists or good people? Are those the two categories? So if everyone's not a fool who denies the existence of God, does that mean that those people are good? And so God is on a search to find other people. But when we ask the question of good, we so often focus on sins of commission, Sins of commission. In defending themselves, people will list off all the bad things they have not done. Have you witnessed like that? So you ask the question, are you a Christian? Do you believe in God? 
Are you going to go to heaven when you die? You can ask all kinds of questions. And, they, and they'll say, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. You say, well, have you kept God's law? Well, yeah, I have never killed anybody. That's number one. I've never killed anybody. So I kept that one. I've never committed adultery. Maybe they'll say that. Uh, maybe someone will say, well, I've never stolen anything. So they always defend themselves by the things they haven't done. They don't defend themselves with the things they have done. Sins of commission are when you break God's law and you, and you do what you're not supposed to do. What about sins of omission when you don't do what God has commanded you to do? So what you won't find is a person on the street and you say, oh, are you a Christian? Have you kept God's law? And they say, yes, I have glorified God in everything I've done. I worship God regularly. I serve faithfully in a local church. <laughs> I mean, they don't do that. Why? Because that, those are all the things they don't, they never do those things. But, that, but therefore, they're, they're using just a standard of what I haven't or have done in sins of commission, not all the things they've left out. God is looking not only for those who haven't done wicked, but for those who have actually done what he's commanded them to do and doing good. External good is demanded. Wouldn't a good person do the other things God's commanded? Not just not violate the last six commandments, but he'd actually keep the first four commandments? I mean, why do we skip over the first four? So when you say on the street, you know, have you kept God's commandments? Yes, I have kept the Sabbath faithfully. I mean, the Pharisees got that right, didn't they? They understood that, that you can't skip the first four and just talk about the last six. You have, to, you have to keep all of God's law. But those are the sins of omission that people do not do. So what's God's conclusion after his search? Now, again, this is God speaking, not me. He's made the search. He knows what he's found. Verse 3, God's conclusion of universal depravity. So is there anyone who understands? Is there any who seek after God? What's the simple answer? No. Verse 3 tells us no. Now, it says it in a few more words, so let's look at the words. There is not one person who seeks after God because they have all fallen away. They've fallen away from obedience to God's law. They've fallen away from a relationship with God. Now, the they there is referring to the children of man in verse 2. God looks down from heaven on the children of man. They have all fallen away. Together, every single person has become corrupt in their participation in Adam's original sin. They've all become corrupt. They've all fallen away. He goes on to say, there is no one who does good. Now, this is true not only for the abominably corrupt fool, but for all mankind. There is none who does good in all of mankind. There is not even one good person. Caveat, there was one good person. Jesus Christ, the only holy, perfect, sinless person. But that's the exception to the rule. There's no one else is righteous. Everyone else is a sinner. There's no one who seeks after God. Okay, is it clear? Universal depravity. All are sinners. Everybody got that? That's important. Got to get the point. Now, how are we to understand this? What about God's people? If this describes all of mankind, and it does, then what about those who not only acknowledge the existence of God, but worship and serve the one true God? What about those who are trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ? Are they good?
You say, I think they're good. I'm trying to figure out how does that work? If it, this is why when you, when you read the Word of God, sometimes you have to study it to stare at it for a long time and hope you see something. Because there's a, there's a challenge here. It's, it's, it's difficult when we think about this. Is there anyone good on earth right now? Well, let's talk about this. This is talking about mankind's fallen nature. This is every person's condition when they are born into this world. Every human being is born a sinner with a sin nature. That's what we saw in Psalm 51, where David said, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. What this means is that every person is under the curse and judgment of original sin. That's verses 1 through 3. It talks about the fool as a category, but all mankind is a separate category, and they're all condemned. Every person born is condemned. But now I want you to turn with me to Romans chapter 3. Leave your finger here. We're going to come back. So put your little marker there. I'm going to do that. Turn to Romans 3. It's page 1,196. If you're using a Bible provided, 1,196, Romans 3. So what does the Apostle Paul do with this truth of Psalm 14 and Psalm 53 and other Psalms? Well, in Romans 3, verse 9, this is what he says. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. Everyone is under the judgment and condemnation of sin. How does he back up that claim? He quotes from this psalm we're looking at, Psalm 53. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. What does he say? This passage that we just looked at, Psalm 53, 1 through 3, condemns all mankind under sin and the penalty of sin. So what's the result of that? The result of that is found in verses 19 and 20. Now we know that whatever the law says, it it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. So what's his conclusion after mankind's nature? We are all lawbreakers who are going to be held accountable to God for breaking that law. And because we've broken the law, there's no way that salvation can come from the law. All the law does is condemn us as lawbreakers. That's mankind's nature. And so he says, based upon who mankind is, the law won't save. That's what he's saying. That's his conclusion. Because of our internal condition, our sinful nature, no amount of law-keeping, external behavior, will lead to a divine judgment of righteous. No one will be justified in the sight of God, declared righteous. God will never look at all your externally good deeds of law-keeping, no matter how many they are, and say, by the way, declared righteous. Why not? Because you do no good in your nature as a sinner. Under sin, you do no good. There's no amount of law-keeping that will undo the fact that all your law-keeping still isn't even good. Now, if keeping the law, if external obedience... If external goodness won't save us, then what hope do we have? If you can't law keep your way to a judgment of righteousness by God, 
then what's your hope? We're all condemned. We're all under sin, Jew and Greek. There's not anyone good, not even one. You might not be a fool who denies God, but you're still a wicked sinner. So what hope do you have? Go back to Psalm 53. The answer in Psalm 53 is subtle, yet it is clear. The answer is found primarily in the pronouns. So kids, pay attention. Grammar is very important. Pronouns are significant. Every word of scripture is significant. Now the differentiation is found in verse 4 when it says, those who work evil and then those who are my people. Have those who work evil no knowledge who eat up my people? Notice there are now two groups of people. In verses 1 through 3, there was one group of people, but now we have two groups of people. Have those who work evil with no knowledge and do not call upon God, who eat up my people. There's a those people and a my people. I thought there was none good, not even one, but now we have from one group to two groups. What happened? Well, those who work evil are the they of verses one through three. And in the old covenant, David, in writing this psalm for the Old Covenant people, is differentiating God's covenant people, Israel, from non-covenant people, the wicked, the enemies of God. Now, we would see that differently applied today in the New Covenant, but the point is that there are God's people and those who aren't God's people. And those who aren't God's people are, are God's enemies. So the they are the they of verse 5 in contrast with the you of verse 5. So they are the ones in great terror, but you put them to shame. And then they call for salvation for Israel, God's covenant people. And so there's a differentiation between those who are God's people and point two, Roman numeral two, verses four through six, God's enemies. There's God's people and God's enemies. First one through three, all are wicked, but now we have a differentiation between God's enemies and God's people. And all the wicked in verses 1 through 3 are God's enemies. They're not God's covenant people. Now, how does David make that leap? There's an understanding of old covenant theology and how much David knew. We're going to look at God's answer in Romans 3 in new covenant theology so that you understand how this plays out. But notice his answer. His answer is that there's actually two kinds of people. But we have to understand that there is only one kind of people to begin with, and then there's two kinds of people, and David doesn't tell us how you get from one group to two groups. He just says, there's my people and not my people. And, and, and the not my people are, are God's enemies and the enemies of God's people. But notice he doesn't give us the solution of how you can go from being an enemy of God to a child of God. Because his psalm isn't answering every problem, it isn't answering every question. So we're still going to focus on the wicked people, but these are now God's enemies. And what God says through David here in verse 4 is his apparent surprise. God's apparent surprise at his enemies. Now, by the way, you can't surprise God. That's why I say apparent surprise. He just seems to be kind of shocked that there are people who have no knowledge. They don't call upon God, and they treat his people like a loaf of bread. Don't the evildoers have any knowledge? I mean, they don't call upon God, but don't they get it at all? Well, is it really surprising that those who deny God's existence won't ruin God's people? If there's no God to give an account to, and if there's no God to protect his people, then why wouldn't I treat his people like something to be eaten, discarded, to be thrown in the trash, whatever it might be? 
It's just, uh, it's what you do at lunchtime, right? Lunchtime for us is sandwich time or leftover time, depending on what the, the value is, right? So for our boys, it's almost a, it's almost a sandwich. Every, so get out the loaf of bread. You make the sandwich. It's just, bread's just common. And when the bread gets a little moldy, you either cut the mold off and keep eating it or you throw it away. You know, don't judge. So the idea here is it's just a loaf. I mean, what, you know, bread is like what? Is it, even with inflation, is it like a dollar a loaf at, if you don't buy the good stuff, you know, the generic uh, Walmart brand? I, I don't really look at bread prices uh, for a loaf of bread. It's the cheapest thing. It's just a, lo- it's a loaf of bread and one slice of bread. I mean, this is what, how they treat God's people. But notice verse 5, God says when they treat God's people this way, there's going to be a response, God's judgment against his enemies. And remember, this is, verse 5 is where the, 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 repro- the second song or the, what would you say, was it not a cover but a remix? The remix is different from the, the original here in verse 5. This is where the language is much stronger. God's judgment on the enemies of God is much clearer to David later in life than earlier in life. And so he focuses on the judgment and strong languages here. God won't allow his people to be abused forever. He will terrorize his enemies where there is no terror. He will terrorize them through rumors and phantoms. Psalm 20, uh, Proverbs 28 verse 1 says, The wicked flee when no one pursues, but the righteous are as bold as a lion. Why do the wicked flee when no one pursues? Because of their guilt. That's what that's talking about there. But also notice in the Old Testament how many times the enemies of God's people, Israel, fled when there were no enemies, when there was no reason to flee. Are you reading through the Old Testament? There's some great examples of this. You can, I'll give them to you. You can read them. 2 Kings 7, 6 and 7. 2 Kings 19, verse 35. 2 Chronicles 20, 22 to 24. There's no enemy, there's no reason to flee, and yet God, the enemies of God's people will run, will flee, they'll even fight themselves, they'll destroy themselves, because God will protect his people, he will respond in judgment on his enemies. He goes on to say, for God scatters the bones of him who encamps against you, this encamping army, the armies have gathered, you put them to shame, so you're going to have victory over them, but not on the basis of your own ability or power, but because God has rejected them. He's rejected them, he's given you victory, and you will have victory over them. He will scatter their bones. Time after time after time after time, God's people saw this in the Old Testament. God's going to judge his enemies. He's going to give us victory over our enemies. God's salvation for his people. Last letter, letter C. God's salvation for his people. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. And if you were a Jew, you would immediately link Zion with the presence of God. So, oh, that salvation would come from God, from the presence of God, from that place where we would dwell with God. That's Zion. We would call it more heaven today in our vernacular. Zion is the place where God dwelt especially, where the special presence of God, even apart from his omnipresence, is found. This is the throne room of God, Zion. And this is where his people worshiped him and where he was in all his power and might. So when David says this, he's saying, oh, that the anointed one would come. Oh, that the Messiah of Israel would come. Oh, that God himself would come and bring salvation for his captive Israel. What is David calling for? He's calling for the anointed one. He's calling for salvation from God. He's calling for Messiah. Who's he calling for? We know his name, do we not? We know Christ's name. We know Messiah's name. What's his name? It's Jesus. He's calling for salvation. Yeshua. God saves. 
He's calling for Jesus to come and save his people. That's what he's calling for here. This is a faith cry for the coming Messiah. God is the one who saves. In light of God's promises to judge his enemies, it is still good and right for us today to pray that salvation would come. And when God does save, when God does destroy our enemies, when God does scatter their bones, what do we do? What's our response? Rejoicing. Let Jacob rejoice. Let Israel be glad. Let God's people rejoice with great gladness. Has Messiah come? Has he saved his people from their sins? Are you rejoicing in your salvation? Not just physical salvation from the enemies that are camped today, but spiritual salvation that God has saved your soul and redeemed you, forgiven you of your sin. Are you rejoicing with great rejoicing? But I haven't answered a question. You should, be, you should be waiting for an answer. Are you waiting? I said, no, I forgot what the question was. All right. Turn to Romans, back to Romans 3. How do you go from being one of those people who is not good at all, not one, not one does good, not even one, how do we go from a universal depravity, all people, all men, born sinners, to becoming one of God's people? Psalm 53 doesn't answer that, but Romans 3 does. Praise God. So remember, the Apostle Paul takes the very same information from Psalm 53 and other places and concludes that no one is going to be declared righteous because of keeping the law. We're all under sin. We're all under judgment. We all are going to have to give an account, and there's no hope for us. And then what does he do? In verse 21, he shows us the hope. First of all, he condemns all mankind, and then he shows us the hope. How you can go from being a wicked sinner, a rebel sinner, who denies God, rejects God, rebels against God, to being one of his people. The last part of the psalm. He says in verse 21, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Well, the law and the prophets bear witness to it. and They bear witness to the righteousness of God through faith in whom? Jesus Christ. The law bears witness to Jesus Christ. The prophets bear witness to Jesus Christ. And so the righteousness of God is through faith in Christ for all who believe. There's no distinction between Jew and Greek. All are sinners, all are under the just condemnation of God, all are under sin, but all who believe will be saved by faith in Christ alone. He, and he repeats it, verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Every person is a sinner, all have fallen short. And all who believe, verse 24, are justified by his grace as a gift, how? Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Here it is. Here's how you go from being an enemy of God to a child of God. You recognize that you can't keep the law. You recognize that you're a wicked sinner, a rebel sinner, and you turn to Christ to be saved. And you trust in what Christ did on the cross, the redemption provided through his blood. Verse 25, God put him forward as a satisfaction, a propitiation by his blood to be received how? By faith. We receive the gift of salvation, the gift of redemption by faith in Christ alone. All are condemned and now God's people trust in Christ alone. Salvation for Israel has come. The Messiah has come. Do you believe in Jesus Christ alone? Have you been saved or are you a wicked rebel? God will scatter the bones of his enemies, but he will save his people from their sins. He will save them from their enemies. He will have victory and they will gladly rejoice in him. Do you see it? 
So how about you this morning? Do you recognize your thoroughly sinful condition? Will you turn to Jesus Christ for salvation from sin and judgment? If you're not one of God's people right now, you can be by trusting in Christ alone. Turn to him, repent of your sin, trust in him alone. And if you are his child, if you're one of his people, you find yourself in verses four through six. The comfort of the psalm. There's, there's, the, there's the terrifying verses one through three, and then there's the comfort of verses four through six for those who are his people. So if you're one of his people, are you rejoicing in God's judgment of his enemies? Are you rejoicing in his salvation? This is a song that we need to sing not just once, but twice. Repeat it, repeat it, repeat it. Because we need to understand that we are sinners in need of a Savior. And the Messiah has come and provided salvation. Have you trusted in him? Have you trusted in the Messiah, Jesus Christ, to save you from your sins? Father, we thank you for the clarity of Old and New Testaments, of Old and New Covenants, of how they show us the truth together. We thank you for revealing your truth this morning. I pray that souls will be saved. I pray for those who are saved that they will be encouraged and strengthened. Do your work in us for your glory. We, we trust in you. We, we rely on you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.